Master Jim, how you doing? I am great. Back from a four or five day road trip, whatever it was. Yeah, where'd you go? Gulf Shores, Alabama, where it was mostly sunny and 70 degrees. And then ah, it's yeah, not nice. that here. Not that. No, yeah. it looks like that, but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, well, welcome back to Contextualize. We're going to be in Acts 14 today. Uh, but before we get into that, um, I was just going to ask, ask you, Jim, have you ever been axe throwing? No. So we went up? Well, yes and no. Not well, okay. to like a real event, but we did the Mountain Festival once. That seems more legit. Yeah, well, it's the Mountain Festival here at yeah. Founders Park. And we oh, were okay. walking through and... They had a booth set up. You could just do like three throws. Yeah. Three throws. So like me and Corey and the kids did it. But like, no, I, I didn't. I, I've never done axe throwing. <laughs> so uh, Krista and I went Friday uh, to the Kingsport one. And it was fun. I, I would recommend it for anybody that's not done it. I, I was just thinking of The Patriot, the movie with uh, Mel Gibson, like the whole time. But a word of um, advice when you think of the Patriot, you just want to throw the axe as hard as you can because that's, you know, you're trying to kill the, the bad people. But the harder you throw it, the, the worse it goes. Really? Is, is what I learned. It just, it, it, it would always bounce off the wall. It, you know, you hit it at the wrong angle. So, but it was fun. We, we had a good time. Uh, we, we want to go again. But I, I'll have to say on the air that Krista beat me two out of three rounds. Did she really? So. She was a delicate axe thrower. <laughs> she, she was way more consistent than I was. So. You know, that's interesting because I married a woman whose hand-eye coordination blows me away. Like, yeah. the kids and I, we, they laugh at me because if I have to toss something across the living room or whatever, like they know that she'll catch it, but they also know I won't throw it in the direction that I'm planning to throw it. So It's all her. <laughs> yeah, so congrats to Krista um, and to every man who's married a woman who has Yeah, so don't mess with me. I, she'll she'll right. come at you with an axe. So. That's good. Man, well, anyways, um, we're back. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in Acts 13 and, um, you know, looked at uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, being sent off on the first missionary journey, and we're going to continue that today. Uh, we're going to look at Acts 14, uh, really is, uh, it's kind of the, the tail, well, the last half of that missionary journey, you might say. They, they bounce around several different cities before uh, returning back um, to Antioch where they started. Um but so so just to kind of hit some of the high points, and we'll, we'll dive in here. So Acts 14, um, they go to Iconium uh, there at the very beginning. And, and basically what happens uh, really from here on in Acts is they go to all these different cities. And when they get there, they, they preach the gospel, right? And, and a lot of times they, they start in the Jewish synagogue, synagogue that goes okay for <laughs> either a short or medium amount of time. And then they end up preaching elsewhere, uh, usually to the Gentiles. And so they do that there, and in kind of the middle section of the chapter, they go to Lystra. Um, Paul ends up getting stoned uh, there, and they go on from there uh, down to Derby in verse uh, 20. And then they come back through. And so that's it's kind of the short version uh, of this chapter. Um, but before, just before we got on this podcast, Jim and I were talking, and uh, you were really looking at what you're going to be covering at your your upcoming uh, preaching workshop about narrative and plot and climax and, and whatnot. And so let me just ask you this before we get into the text. Why or what, what advice would you give when it comes to reading a narrative? 
Like, just ha- how do we approach reading a narrative and, and following, like, what's going on? What's the big idea? Just kind of, what? How, how do we do that? And then we'll, we'll look at this text. Well, I think that all truth is God's truth. It's very important to think through how scholarship or literature, uh, literary um, uh, literary scholarship has, has taught us to understand the the flow of a narrative, the flow of a story. So the, the old school plot arc that many of us learned when we were in school of just, you know, a story has a setting followed by a, climate, a, a, a conflict of some sort. The conflict, conflict doesn't mean two people are fighting, but it's the tension that a reader feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the there's a climax of that conflict, and that's the climax of that scene, or maybe it's the whole story. And then resolution happens next. Resolution doesn't mean that all the people that were grumpy are not grumpy anymore. It means that because the climax happened, of course now the narrative, it just, like like a river, it just topples over and there's a resolve and it's going to now end up with the next setting, Mm -hmm. oftentimes called stasis. Um, So AJ was seeing on on my whiteboard here, I'm considering the whole book of 1 Samuel in the preaching workshop and I was actually using that, that plot arc to draw all the chapters of 1 Samuel of what is the shape of that that whole book of the Bible. So, and the reason that's important is because there's so many amazing themes that we can say, well, I know what it's all about because I understand the theme of, you know, let's use the book of Acts. I understand the theme of the Holy Spirit being given. I understand the theme of uh, Jesus continuing to work. Um, yes, those are descriptions there, but if we if we drew the whole plot arc of mm-hmm. the book of Acts, yeah. What's the main climax moment? What's the what is the tension and the conflict going on that we see gets resolved as the Holy Spirit moves forward in history through His Church being launched globally? Yeah. Um, and then the probably the the most useful nature of that plot arc tool is to to get into a chapter or a particular story and say, okay, if I was teaching this, there's a lot of parts I connect to. So the people I'm preaching to or who are reading it with me, they may connect with this character or that character, and we can all have it get really colorful for us. Mm-hmm. But when we're teaching or we're trying to communicate the intent of the passage, what is the, the, the driving conflict that's in that set of verses? What's the climax where it all comes to a head, and then how does the Holy Spirit bring resolve? And I think in the text we were just looking at, or about to look at, it's a pretty interesting plot arc that we yeah. maybe could even use to talk through it so yeah i don't know if that helps we could get yeah. into other literature types in the scriptures right. other genres it's a very different way to make sure you get the right theme right but narratives is tricky. narrative yeah well i think that's helpful and before we we i'll let you kind of walk us through that and think through the the plot arc here um but one thing just hearing you talk about makes me think about is that i mean in some ways when we read or, or hear preached god's word it's different than any any other book. And that's true. In another way, we can approach it just like it's a book. Like, it, like uh, I think sometimes people need to hear that and that we can maybe uh, approach it with too much, um, I don't even know what the right word is, but but we just we just bring um, our thinking to it. We, we know it. We bring what we know about grammar, about words, about literature, about um, different uh, genre of literature. And if we think about what the Bible is saying in those ways, it's it's very helpful. It's very um, ordinary yeah. in in that sense. Um, not that, and that's not to diminish from the fact that it's it's divine that we need God's Spirit to give us illumination. But um, sometimes, I mean, you just you read a story and you think about it as a story, and that can be a very helpful posture. Yeah, and I want to get we'll get into this chapter, but since you, you kind of brought it up, I think it's helpful for us to do a little teaching for a second. 
take the really the really well-known story David and Goliath right uh-huh. right I mean have courage like David have courage like David or your enemies are like Goliath but they're not going to stand forever I mean there's just a, right. a lot of different ways that you've had the theme of the whole chapter be summarized in children's storybooks or whatever if we were really teaching through and taking our time there and you kind of plot arced it out, you know, obviously the setting starts and the Philistines and the Israelites are against each other. What's the conflict? Well, the Philistines say we have we have a giant. Pick a man to fight against our man. And you know what? If if you win, we'll serve you. If we win, we take all your stuff and you serve us. Okay. That's the conflict. Yeah. What's the climax of that story? Is it when David defeats Goliath, the more you study, you say, well, time out. That's not the climax. The climax of this conflict is when young David, who's there serving lunch to his brothers, he hears this going on and he's going, why is are none of my brothers and my, my brother's peers in the Israelite army, why is no one standing up to this imposter who dares defies the army of, right. the, of the living God? And so if you look at the story and you think this plot arc thing, the, the, all the conflict comes to a head when young David says, God can save and there is no enemy God cannot conquer. And this individual is not defying us and making us scared. This individual and the Philistine people are defying our God. And our God, he fights. And our God is victorious. And so that's when, of course, you could say the, the resolve starts to happen. And David says, I'll wear the armor. I'll fight him. Mm-hmm. Because I'm so convinced the climax is God's the king. And he will defeat his enemies and he will protect his people and he will keep his promises that young David saying, I know who God is. God fights for his own. That climax turned into resolution. And so at the very end, when Goliath is defeated, of course, the story was going to go that way. Mm-hmm. But where yeah. did it pivot? Right. Where did it turn? And if I was teaching that text, it would help me a lot to discern that because if I make the pivot when that stone hits Goliath in the forehead, I will preach about David's courage. I'll preach about David's Create, you know, just his skill that he'd been working all his life to to have that much accuracy. I, I, I'll, I'll make some application to yeah. the hearer that's not the powerful part of the text. If I can get the climax right, then I'll understand the resolution mm-hmm. that applies more to our lives. And then, of course, in that scene, it's amazing. What the very last part of it, what's the new setting? The Israelites go and plunder the Philistines and God is a God of abundance, which relates to the whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel because God is introduced as the Lord of plenty. Yeah. And so, again, small illustration. That's what I'll be doing at the preaching workshop. But to turn to this passage right here, it's kind of enjoyable to read this chapter and say, how does the conflict turn toward a climax? And where Mm -hmm. is that spot? And how does that help us understand what's going on here? Yeah, that's a lot of words. I'm sorry. No, that's it's helpful. Uh, yeah, where's the climax? Where's the pivot? Where's the turning point? If we if we see that, it helps us understand. So how about if on this on. chapter, I'll introduce the setting, and then I'll ask you a question as okay. we talk through. Where do you see what's the conflict going on? How about yeah. that? So the setting, just to those of you that are listening, we're in chapter 14 of the book of Acts. Paul and, and they go to they go to preach there in Iconium, and they enter the synagogue as AJ said, and there's a great number of both Jews and Greeks that believe. And the setting will kind of continue in the early verses where you realize that there, there's a real emphasis in this setting of the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And there's a similar response in that some believe on both sides. Mm-hmm. And there's a different response in that we're going to see that the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles both kind of have an experience of disregard if they're not believers. And so we read in verse 4, what was the setting like? The people of the city were divided. Yeah. 
Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And those who are on the apostles' side, some of those are Jews, and some of those are Gentiles. Yeah. So, okay, so we have a divided city with regards to the gospel. That's our setting. Yeah. Why don't I ask you, as you, you see Paul start to do some ministry here, what conflict starts to develop? Where, where, where's, the, where's the conflict in the chapter? Um, so one, one thought just on you, what you were saying there. Um, it's really interesting there that the division is not Jews and Greeks. The division is believing or rejecting what the apostles, yes. the, the, the gospel. Well said. Um, so, so they go into Lystra, um, and I'm just kind of reading through this, thinking about what you said, but they go into Lystra, uh, they find a man who, who's lame, who's crippled from birth. Uh, Paul speaks. He stands up, so he performs a miracle so that he would um, would be walking. And then in verse eleven, um, it says that the crowds lift up their voices in the local language, and they they think that Zeus and Hermes have come down to us in the likeness of men. And so they begin to really have a kind of a parade and and praise uh, for them. Um, and so, it, and then. I mean, they have to respond to that in verse, uh, what, 14 and, and following. And so um, your question was, was, what's the conflict? Yeah, what's the conflict? If, if I'm reading this, and I'm not testing you, I want us to yeah, wrestle this no, out together. Right. Like, I mean, it, it seems to be, um, so they, they go and they're, they're doing ministry, but then that ministry is uh, maybe poorly interpreted by the locals. And so th- there seems to be this tension and conflict of, um, and I'm, I'm just kind of asking, like, wh- what are they going to do now that these people think that they're, that they're trying to preach the gospel of Jesus as God, <laughs> and these people are saying, hey, you, you're the gods. Yeah. And kind of. So that, that's happen. a great example of just what can happen in a narrative is the conflict, and is it's just radical confusion. Yes. There's a conflict inside each of these unbelieving Gentile individuals who have understood something glorious has just happened, this healing. They've never seen it before. They realize these men have authority and power. But the conflict inside of them is, how do we worship these guys? Yeah. Well, let's, let, let's, let's throw Greek mythology on top of mm-hmm. this developing scene here in the middle of our town. And so the conflict just really builds to a head in a way, what is it, verse 14, where Paul and Barnabas have to, they have to do something to resolve this crisis. Right, what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do they do? So they tear their garments. They rush into the crowd, and they cry out. Um, you know, why are you doing these things? We're they basically say we're just men like you guys. We're not like don't worship us. Yeah. And then they start preaching about the God who made God who made heaven and earth. Um, what God has done. God's witness to Himself. So, so it's I guess in short, they they run into the crowd and say we're not God here's who you should be worshiping. Right. Like they're and redirecting. They, they the, choose the to redirect it into the realm of creation. I think, right. Which is interesting. It, creation and, um, and even like provision, providence. Yeah. Of, he's provided for you food and rain and that kind of thing. So they realize that they must, and, and it, you know, verse 14 to tear their garments and run out into the crowd, you know, is an visceral response yeah. of, to this error. So again, how do, if I say, well, where's the climax of this scene? Well, you have measured but confident apostles preaching the gospel in the synagogue have now turned into clothes ripping, parade crashing, halt it, stop, you know, stop immediately. 
instruction in who the God is that's created all things and sustains all things. And they said, we're here to share the good news, verse 15. Yeah. And we're just creatures, if you will, made in his image, but right. creatures as are you. And and so in some regards, that's how they choose to resolve the scene, if you will. Yeah. Now, AJ and I were talking before we got on, and we're just kind of thinking through this in real time. But if the climax is this intersection in the middle of this parade where the apostles stop it, what's amazing is... What do they do when they stop it? Well, what Paul always does, he preaches the gospel of Jesus. He explains that the creating God is the redeeming God, that God came to earth in the man who is Jesus, which is what he was preaching in the synagogue earlier. And there's one sentence there in verse 15 that I think might give us an indication of kind of what they were saying. Paul says, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Mm -hmm. So obviously he taught, but one of the key things at this climax moment was to say, there's emptiness in what mm -hmm. you're doing. Yeah. There's emptiness. And then the weirdest thing happens in this story, which I would link to part of the resolution of this whole plot arc. In verse 19, these unbelieving Jews show up from Antioch and Iconium. They persuade the crowds and then they stone Paul and drag him out of the city, supposing he's dead. So, so what could possibly have happened that th this, this group of unbelieving, confused Gentiles would then suddenly do it, who want to worship Paul and Barnabas, do, do a bout face. Let's kill him. And, right. Yeah, let's kill him. What could the Jews who rejected the gospel have, have said to convince them? And I wonder if the text doesn't give us just enough indication that Paul had said, you're doing something that's completely empty and vain. And I want to tell you of the living God. Right. That's pretty eerily similar to the same message that Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue would have said to the Jewish believers who rejected Jesus to say, well, then if you reject Jesus, who is God's fulfillment of the law, then what you are doing in keeping the law on your own is vain, vain. is empty. There's no power to it. It will not save you. Yeah. And so you almost get the thought at the climax here of, the message delivered by the apostles is anything that seeks to turn to God apart from Jesus Christ mm -hmm. is insufficient and empty and false and yeah. it's mythical. Right. Whether you're a Jew who says the law is your salvation, that's a mythical salvation if you don't find the law to have introduced you it's to Jesus. Interesting and way kept to put it, yeah. Or the Gentiles who actually do turn to mythical things and right. say, This is Zeus and Hermes, the message has been delivered. Yeah. And so I, I would say that's the, that's a whole scene of climax. Yeah. And the resolution is, let's kill him. Right. But that's not God's resolution. <laughs> not in this text. Right, because he doesn't die. <laughs> yeah, so so that's what I mean. If we get the climax right, then we go, well, what happens next? Right. Okay, so they want to kill him. He doesn't die. What does happen? So the disciples gathered about him, verse 20. He, he rose up and entered the city. And I, I, that, like, to me, that... <laughs> You've said before, like, wrestle with the surprise in the text. And it's just, you know, like, seriously, Paul, like, you're just going to go back into the city where they just stoned you thinking you were dead. It's like, like Paul the opossum. Yeah. You know, just, <laughs> oh, wait, he's not dead. Oh, he's coming back. <laughs> there he is. And what here. does he do when he comes back? 21. Well, and, and, well, then he go, they go to Derby. The, the next oh, that's city. a different city. They, yeah. they go to Derby. Goes to that city. But yeah, they preach the city day. there, Thank make you. many disciples. But then they return to Lystra. 
So they 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 come back to the city. They strengthen the souls, encourage them to continue in faith. Tell them that they're going to suffer. Uh, they appoint elders, and with prayer and fasting, they commit them to the Lord. So, again, AJ's looking at this whiteboard when I walk in, and it's this big plot arc drawing. The resolution in this story is God plants a church of disciples who understand suffering by apostles who suffered in front of them, mm-hmm. who defended Jesus as the only way one can be known by God, but who is the evidence that the God that we worship is living. Yeah. And the church grows. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it was an, someone from a Jewish context or a Gentile context. The confusion has been addressed right. in the gospel and discipleship has commenced. Like that, that's amazing. Yeah, and that, to, to me, that just double, or it highlights what you were pointing at earlier of, you know, their message was turned from these vain things. Well, what happens kind of in the, the coming days and months is this new religion, so to speak, from their view, that these disciples are being strengthened, they're growing. Like the, the, the non-vanity of it is being shown as the Lord strengthens his church in these disciples. From a parade of confusion to a church with a structure Mm -hmm. of disciples and called leaders. Yeah. That's just, it's really an amazing chapter. And as as I came in from my lunch meeting, AJ just said, yeah, we're on chapter 14. There's just so many things we can talk about in this chapter. It's really, it's a a fun chapter. Yeah, it's Um, fascinating. By the way, that last... Well, not the last verse, but um, toward the end of the chapter, verse 23. 23. Yeah, they had appointed elders for them in every church. It's a really great text that has often been pointed to when we would say, well, does the Bible give practice of or command of a plurality of elders in the local church? Here you have right here that the goal is not elders over a city with one elder serving in each local church or something like that. Mm -hmm. The goal is not a single pastor that's been given a charge in that place. The goal is a church is planted and established when the Holy Spirit gathers disciples who worship God through Christ and elders are appointed for those churches. So the word elders is plural. The word church is singular. Mm-hmm. And it's universalized to say every church. Every church. So it's a great it's a great um, polity or ecclesiastical uh, text as well. Yeah, and that's it's uh, you know Paul and Barnabas are on a missions journey here. I'm really sent out as as apostles here um, as, as evangelists. And back in verse or chapter 13, when they're set apart and sent out, it's very similar language. They're, they're set apart by the Spirit, by the church. That's There's right. prayer and fasting. Right. There's laying out of hands. And so they're they're commissioned in this same way that now they're commissioning and ordaining these local elders in each church. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's helpful uh, even to note the context here of um, the appointing of elders here follows what, what is said right before it of strengthening, encouraging, talking about the reality of suffering as necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God, that the, the picture of suffering that, that came before this, the, um, the whole story which speaks of bold proclamation of the gospel, 
So, so the idea of, of elders over churches caring and, and, and teaching and leading is connected to all those things. Yes. Um, you know, so. So my encouragement to readers of the scripture, um, especially if you're in a narrative, um, is I'm reading a story in the Bible. It's got people I connect to. It's got warm, fuzzy feelings or it's got confusing parts. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself maybe two questions. Where's the tension or what is the tension? Uh-huh. And what makes it tip? Yeah. And and if we can understand where that is, that will really help us understand what's going on in the scene. Yeah. And, and it will ultimately really help us understand the main point, probably. Right. Um, application flows out of that, because that's when it's, an, it's a wonderful thing to say, don't we all feel similar tensions in our life? Yeah. Of confusion. We don't understand how God works or... Don't we then sometimes think that the church is going to die mm-hmm. and is not going to make it through suffering? I mean, right. I've never had anyone pick up stones and throw them at me when I'm trying to preach the gospel. I've never had a group of people... Have you ever who, anybody try to worship you? No, never anybody try to worship me. I've never had anybody show up to town yeah. and convince a whole bunch of people who are excited about this new message of the gospel to suddenly, in, a, in an instant, not believe right. it and want to kill me. Right. So everything's dark in this. But once we find where the climax is, where the apostles run out in the streets to set things right and are unafraid to say, that's vanity, that's vanity, we can expect the same resolution in our life. If we will say to the things of the world, that's vanity, that's vanity, that's vanity. Jesus is the living God, came in the flesh. He's our rescuer. He kept the law for you. So your attempt to keep the law is not vain. It's been kept for you. Okay. Why do I then sometimes get so downcast and broken because i don't think the resolution in my life or in our church's story is going to be the same as we see here see so application gets easier mm-hmm. much easier yeah it points to and it. i would say much right, more accurate right yeah <laughs> we're not fishing for application it it, it actually helps guide us yep. towards it yep. um, well good well thanks for man that was fun thinking about the narrative and stuff i hope that's helpful can i give for you one last comment yeah man you got I'm looking at the clock, but I love this. So one of the the principles that has influenced me in reading and teaching the Bible is that um, determining the structure of a passage and spending time in it, if you're really studying, is is important. Not because we want to make the Bible rigid and make it in outline form or anything like that. But the meaning and often the main point of a passage is discovered within its structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. We're doing that in 1 Corinthians. Is there a command followed by a bunch of participles or prepositions or whatever the case may be? Right. I need to see that so I know the main points. Okay, the same is true in what we just talked about. The, the illustration to kind of drive that home for me in these preaching workshops that I'll do and is that the structure of our bodies is our bones. But what's inside of our bones? Marrow. Mm-hmm. I don't know what marrow is. But I've been told... It's what's inside of bones. Yeah. It's actually the life of the body. Um, the life of a, of a text is in the bones of the text. Mm-hmm. And if I like reading the Bible because it makes me feel good and I'm just jumping and taking words or sentences and saying, oh, that means a ton to me, but I'm not slowing down to say, why is it here and what is it doing in these verses in this way? I may get some truth and I may understand some things, but I will, mm-hmm. I will not unlock the power yeah. of the text the life of it won't come out to me and so that's kind of what we tried to do this morning yeah pretty cool yeah that's i mean it's a, a huge part of 
the context of what we're reading is how how is it put together and i think seeing it even even with this i mean the 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 section that we read today fits in with the whole narrative of the book of acts Mm -hmm. um and when we see kind of the micro structure as well as the macro structure we're paying attention to context and not just treating the bible as this random collage of pieces and parts yes like no they're they're put in certain places with intention by the writers and by the spirit working through them so if someone says prove to me why the bible teaches you should have a plurality of elders i'd be like let's turn to acts chapter 14 and i'll show you where it says it that's nothing close to saying but if i look in acts 14 i see it in its context in its structure god took the most confusing thing and he birthed an order an orderly Mm -hmm. organized church of believers so that means it's not just me saying, look, the word elders is plural. Now I'm saying, look at what the Holy Spirit did in a short period of yeah. time. And you see the reason for it. Yeah. It's not just a random fact. Yeah. It, it You see reason and the why of why God yep. set it up that way. Yeah, so the meaning's just enhanced. Right. Even if we get lucky sometimes and say, ah, I'm not going to take the time, but I got the main point. Sometimes you get lucky. But man, <laughs> if you dig in and yeah. slow down, the depth of meaning and the application of Christ and the gospel is all that much more potent and effective. Amen. Well, that was a, a lengthy one comment. Not, not your fault. <laughs> not, not your fault. We just we just got going. That was good. Yes, so. this is great. Uh, we're not awesome. as funny as the car talk guys. <laughs> but... This was a good podcast. Yeah, I don't know this is we're great as, discussion. We're not as smart as the car talk. No, guys. and and you know what? Next week we'll start taking call-ins. There we go. Yeah. Call us with your your issues on acts. We'll, <laughs> we'll diagnose it. No, no. Yeah. Hey, I hope you have a great rest of your week, Christ community.